Aina mana, aina reo, aina waka, aina monga, aina awa, aina iwi, hurinoa, ite whenua nei, nau mai hare mai, ki te kaupapa o nei kai tuhi, me nga kai pānui o te taurima o Aotearoa. Mori ora ki a tātou katoa, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. I was lucky enough to visit Antarctica this year, so I was absolutely thrilled to get this invitation. Um, she's a very accomplished, science-trained writer, and I think that really shines through in the book. And the first thing that I really wanted to explore was how accurate the book was. So both from the science perspective and from the detailed uh, description of Scott Bass and everything, it felt like I was there again. I was terrible at recording the details when I was there. So I wondered if you could give us an insight into how you got such detail into your writing. Mm. Um, I would say it's very accurate. Um, while I'm travelling, <laughs> if I'm in any sort of extreme situation or interesting place, I'm in a compulsive um, note-taker and journal writer. Um, the first time I was at Scott Base and um, spent a couple of weeks in Antarctica, I was writing a series of articles for the listener, but I was also having, a, I guess, an intense personal experience, and the way I deal with intense personal experiences is to write, so I was keeping a, a detailed journal. Um, and also on that first trip, I was interviewing a lot of scientists and I ended up with way, way more material than I could possibly use in my listener articles. And so my second and third trips, I was um, by then working at Victoria University of Wellington and I was um, working on an online course about Antarctica. So we were um, recording videos. Um, and so we, you know, sometimes we were purposefully, you know, doing a lecture and recording the video. Other times we just had the video recorder running. Um, and so when I came to work on the book, I was able to draw on interviews with scientists, video recordings, my obsessive note-taking, all the other sort of bits of paraphernalia that I'd gathered along the way, um, and then all my photographs as well. So I think it's, yeah, very accurate account. If anyone sees anything in there that I think's not quite true, let me know. Yeah. <laughs> not now. <laughs> So when you were actually in the process of writing the book, did you write from memory and then go back and check the details or were you constantly cross-referencing as you went? I, I started with my journals, which were quite detailed. And so the first thing I did was just write out my journals. It brought back so many memories. So my journals are handwritten and notes. And because I was in Antarctica and going off, spending some time on base, spending some time... Um, walking, a lot of time walking outdoors, sometimes in a field camp, I had a series of journals. So I had my sort of big journal that I'd write in in the evening. I had a smaller journal. I had pockets stuffed with little notebooks. And, and I was constantly writing things down. So if someone said something interesting or if I thought something that I wanted to hold on to, I'd be writing that down. So I guess it was the first thing I did was amalgamate all my own notes into a narrative account and then I started going back and filling in the gaps and the gaps might have been from interviews with scientists or from some subsequent research that I did, all sorts of things, yeah. 
Yeah, so the remarkable thing for me was you had all that technical detail and yet you still managed to capture that sense of wonder from the place, which is really unusual for a piece of quite technical writing. So yeah. Somebody asked me when I was reading it over Christmas, is that a workbook or a novel? And I thought, <laughs> well, I think it's both. Um, so the way it slipped between the two I thought was fabulous. Yeah. I think for, in terms of the sense of wonder, it was so vital that I wrote things down while they happened and that I recorded my impressions and feelings. Um, a lot of the detail sort of came after that, I guess. In my first draft, I had my personal impressions, I had all scientific detail, and I hadn't really written anything about what the place looked like. I just hadn't recorded that because I guess I was processing that in a different way. So I did have to go back over all my um, photos and videos and look at it again and kind of experience what it was like to see this place and then try and describe it in words. Mm. So that's probably a good segue into the first reading that okay. we were going to do. So Rebecca's going to read the passage that I really loved about um, the Pressure Ridges walk right at the beginning. Sure. So this is um, on my first trip to Antarctica in 2011. I was there with a poet called Alice Miller. And um, on this day, we believed that we were heading home the next day. It didn't really turn out that way. Um, but that's the mood in which we were going for this walk. So before we left, Alice and I wanted one last walk on the pressure ridges. We put on our jackets and boots, took a radio and poles, and crossed the transition in front of Scott Bass. We started following the flagged route, taking the same path, but without even needing to discuss it, walking separately. Close enough to be able to find each other in a sudden whiteout, but far away enough to have the sense of being alone. A light snow was falling, but we could still see Minna Bluff in the distance. Even so, all definition had gone. The ice was white, the falling snow was white, and I lost my sense of where the ground was. The dusting of snow had obliterated all footprints from the last few days. As I went on, the cloud dropped lower, and I was suspended in whiteness. If I looked down, I could see my boots and my pole, but I'd ceased to be in a place. My only reference points were the sound of flags flapping and the distant beeping of a reversing truck. I stopped for a few breaths and took some cautious steps forward until I could make out a line of red flags gently whipped by the wind. A skewer glided by, checking if I was edible. I was wearing a pink hat, and I hoped he didn't mistake it for the seal placenta that skewer I was so fond of. The radio buzzed in as a field party and one of the Haglins called in. Scott Bass, Scott Bass, this is H3, over. I stopped by a milk pool. The turquoise pool and the dark cyan of a near vertical slab of ice beside it seemed obnoxious with colour. And more red flags. Without the flags, there was no scale. Without the flags, I'd be seeing ice mountains, deep ravines, wide blue lakes. I walked down a slope and found myself lost in a deep ice valley. I followed the flags up over a rise. There was Alice, notebook in hand. Like me, she was staring out at the red flags, the white snow, the endless plain, Antarctica. The beauty of it. I shed tears again for Antarctica, the pleasure and warmness of new friends. I cried for something I could never really possess a fleeting experience that I could never hope to replicate. My sunglasses fogged and Antarctica was gone.
That's just such a beautiful piece of writing and ends with reference to crying. I don't know if I can explain it, but there was a lot of crying. Um, I cried when I arrived, and I think I cried every day. It was just kind of so overwhelming to be there um, after spending, I, I guess I was in my early 40s when I went, but I'd spent a lot of time wanting to go to Antarctica. And um, this place that had been, I guess, in my imagination for so long, an almost mythical place, to actually arrive there and step out of the plane and be there was um, quite an overwhelming experience. And I guess that just kept on happening to me every day. So happy crying. I don't, it didn't feel happy. It was just, it, it just felt like a real emotional intensity. Yeah, a mix of happy and, and a bit of sadness, I guess. Yeah. So another theme in the book is about the personal cost of going, I suppose, and the things that you're leaving behind. So I guess some of the tears were the wonder of the place and others were a bit deeper inside. Well, I, I think I first applied to go to Antarctica in my 20s. So a lot of people say to me, you've been to Antarctica, you're so lucky. And it's like, well, yeah. Um, I'd, I had applied to go four times unsuccessfully before I went, and that is often the case, I think, with people who are keen to go to Antarctica. Some people are lucky enough to get to go their first time, but for me, there was a lot of perseverance and a, you know, a continued focus on this thing I wanted to do. So I'd applied to go when I was a student at Victoria University of Wellington studying geology and was unsuccessful. I'd applied um, to be a public relations officer with... Um, I think back then it was the DSIR's Antarctic Division at the time when they sent someone down there for six months over the summer. And I'd applied twice to go on the media program and had been unsuccessful. Um, so by the time I was invited um, on an invited media program with Antarctica New Zealand, at this time I um, was writing a regular science column for the listener. And I was working on a book, an anthology of Antarctic science so by the time I was invited, I um, was in my early 40s and I had three children. So that was a definite tension there. So at the same time, I had this intense passion, I guess, for Antarctica and wanting to go there, but also a very strong pull to be at home. I had three children under five, I think. Yeah, so that was... You know, I wanted to go to Antarctica, but I felt really uneasy about leaving them behind. Yeah, so I think of all the passages in the book, the one that you're going to read for us next was the one that most resonated with me. Not because I left anyone behind when I went on my trip, but I thought it really captured that tension between should, should I focus on my career or should I stay with my kids? Yeah, okay, so I, I've never read this one in public before. And I did just go through the readings this morning and I couldn't read this one without getting a bit teary. So I feel now that I've said that, I'm going to be just fine. <laughs> yeah. My mother told me the cold was in my blood. My great-grandfather Anders was born in Finland. He used to go to school on skis, Ruth would exclaim. It was easier for me to get to the Arctic than to Antarctica. I was earning now and could afford to travel. I went trekking in Iceland. I visited Eric's Fjord and went on an Arctic safari in Greenland. I wrote magazine articles about it and applied to go to Antarctica on the Antarctica New Zealand media program. I put a photograph of myself in Greenland on the cover of my application, but it didn't convince them. 
The quality of applications we received under this program was very high this year, they wrote in their rejection letter, and suggested I write my planned articles anyway from New Zealand. In my early 30s now, I flew with my boyfriend to Scandinavia. We travelled from Oslo to Bergen by train, boat and bus, and then travelled up the north coast, up the coast of Norway. From Trondheim, we took a ferry to the Lofoten Islands, where snow-capped mountains jutted out of the sea. Along the rocky coast, we found red fishing shacks, cod drying on racks, and dive-bombing seagulls. From our hostel in the small village of Orr, we walked up a steep mountain track until we found snow. My boyfriend laughed at my tramping boots and nerdy backpack full of emergency clothing, food, and water. I laughed back at him when he slipped on the ice in his foolish city shoes, then offered him a pair of gloves for his frozen hands. As we travelled north by bus and ferry between the islands, we read books, and he tried to teach me to play poker. I was 33, and I very much wanted a baby. Perhaps we should break with family tradition and get married first, he had said a week earlier. I didn't like tradition, had no desire to do things the right way, but this thing, having children, was important. I did want to do this the right way. On the ferry after we crossed into the Arctic Circle, he proposed. <laughs> this is where I've got to keep it together. Okay. I said yes, and he put a metal beer tab on my ring finger. <laughs> we were both so embarrassed that we couldn't look at each other without giggling for the rest of the day. We went camping in Sweden, where the midnight sun and the enormous mosquitoes kept us awake all night. We visited Kokola, the town where my Finnish great-grandfather lived. Then we went south to Helsinki, where we ate fried herrings and potatoes and drank honey vodka. We visited the Absolute Vodka Factory in Sweden. We had a sauna and afterwards ate sausages and drank beer. I wrote magazine articles about it. We got married. I had a baby, a gorgeous, demanding, fierce little girl, and my world got smaller. For a while, I didn't want to go anywhere. Before our Scandinavia trip, I'd been to a careers counsellor to discover what I wanted to be when I grew up. After a complex card-sorting exercise, academic came up as an option. I remembered that I'd always planned to continue to study, but was unsure of where I fitted. Then I discovered a new discipline, the history of science. I combined my love of writing and narrative with my love of science. I started a PhD and began researching and writing about New Zealand's nuclear and radiation history. Antarctica came into this story too. As a part-time PhD student, I spent time in the archives discovering things about New Zealand's nuclear history, but also about Nukipu, the nuclear power station that powered the American base at McMurdo Station, not always successfully, in the 1960s. I began writing a regular magazine science column with two women who had been to Antarctica on media programs. In 2006, I applied to go to Antarctica on a new Antarctica New Zealand Media Initiatives in Antarctica program. Again, I was unsuccessful. Even if I had been accepted, I wouldn't have gone. By the end of the year, I had baby twins as well as my now five-year-old girl. Every list of life goals I wrote in my journal had go to Antarctica in a professional capacity in the list. I began to feel inadequate. I was an Antarctican who hadn't been to Antarctica. I produced an anthology of New Zealand science writing. Then I decided to follow it up with an anthology of Antarctic science writing. I read as many books about Antarctic science as I could. 
I also began writing my own magazine articles about Antarctica, interviewing Antarctic scientists for stories about ice core drilling and Ross Island hut restoration. When I was finally invited to Antarctica, I'm putting our media invite list to our board today, and I think it is best you know that you are on it, Matt emailed me one day. I felt a mixture of excitement and relief, plus a bit of apprehension. I was now a mother of three, and my wanderlust had been tempered by my desire to stay close to my family, to keep them safe, to keep myself safe for them. I'd also experienced frightening pre- and postnatal anxiety and depression, and was nervous about doing something that might upset my equilibrium. But I was also really, really excited. I love those phrases, um, world getting smaller, and also the wanderlust tempered. Um, I think it really captures how many women especially feel when, when they have a child and suddenly have to re-establish their boundaries. Is that something you felt all the way along being a mother, or was it particularly um, around the trip to Antarctica? I think it was something, to some extent, yes, all the time, but going to Antarctica is something else. I had been to Europe for a couple of weeks on my own when my twins were two and my older girl was seven. And I don't know, it's further away, but there's something about Antarctica um, that feels very different. It's only a five-hour flight on a, a C-17 or an eight-hour flight on a Hercules from Christchurch. Um, but in a way... It's a lot further. Um, it's a lot more sensitive to the weather conditions. And as we found out on my first trip down, we were due to fly home after eight days. Um, and the weather on the day we were due to fly was not particularly bad from our perspective, but there was a, a cloud cover um, and the planes just couldn't land in those sort of conditions. When you've got white sky and white ground, um, there's sort of no sense for the pilot about about where the ground is, and it was considered unsafe. Um, I was also aware on that second trip that I was there that I was going to be going to a remote field camp in the Transantarctic Mountains, um, and that was another sort of isolation. So even though the distance is not as far as going to Europe, it felt a lot further away. And I guess um, even though today the you know the sort of safety measures that are taken and the quality of the bases are so so different. Um, those heroic age narratives are just always there. They're always in your mind when you're going to Antarctica. Yeah, that you know you might not come back. I was really impressed at how brave you were. It seemed to me a, a really brave journey. Um, you're at the very edge of your comfort zone. So I think the the last reading you're going to do is the one where you're feeling anxious in the tent. Ah, sure, yeah. Um, so this is from my second trip to Antarctica. And um, on that trip, my father was weeks away from dying and I went anyway. Um, so I was in a, a field camp in the Transantarctic Mountains with a, a group of geologists, um, most of whom I knew um, and had known for a while and was friends with. The guys are planning the next day's fieldwork, but I need to be on my own. So I say my goodnights and head for my tent through the bright white of the blowing snow. 
The surface beneath the snow is dusty and brown, and every time I go into my tent, I track in a bit of 14 million year old dirt mixed with fresh snow. Getting in and out of the tent, which has a fly sheet over the top, is a mission. Because of the cold, I'm wearing my ECW boots, and I need to take them off before crawling inside. It's a one-person tent, and inside is my three-layer sleeping bag, a down bag, inside a synthetic bag, inside a canvas bag, on top of my foam and sheepskin sleeping mats. Beside the bed, my clothes and books are spilling out of a large stuff bag. My pee bottle is in one corner of the tent, and my drink bottle is in another. Note to self, do not mix them up. <laughs> I'm a messy traveller, and my tendency to flick things from one end of the tent to the other is not good here, as the mixture of dust from outside and moisture from melting snow is making things mucky. I wasn't expecting dirt in Antarctica. I strip off everything except my thermals, socks, hat, and neck gaiter, and get as deep into my bags as I can. Despite the time, it's after 9 p.m., and the falling snow, it's light. The sun won't set here for another three months, and there's a gentle orange glow inside my tent. It's cosy, and I usually cherish alone time, but I'm having trouble breathing, and I'm starting to panic. On my own in the tent, without any chatter around me, I acknowledge to myself that I really don't feel good. My head is buzzing, my chest feels tight, and my heart is palpitating. I can't breathe. I don't know if there is something physically wrong with me, or if it's anxiety. My father is dying. My fixed-term contract at the university is about to come to an end. I've been on the go, all work, no play, for two years solid and I think my body has forgotten how to relax. To make it worse, my kids didn't want me to leave home. I've been away a lot the last two years, to academic conferences and back and forth to see my father in the United States where he was having treatment, and once he moved back to New Zealand to Christchurch, and at some level I feel selfish and bad for being away again. I take stock. I'm alone in a small orange and grey tent on an ice-free plateau in the Dry Valleys region of Antarctica. It's minus 20 degrees, and there's a light snow falling, making a gentle pattering sound, like someone is throwing handfuls of sand at my tent. Nearby in the Polar Haven tent, the geologists are gathered around the stove, chatting and having one last drink before bedtime. The guys in the Polar Haven are my friends. I trust them and like them but I'm too ashamed to reveal how on edge I feel. I'm so privileged to be here, but I'm feeling trapped. There's no warm inside I can escape to. If I'm sick, there's no chance for medivac as the helicopters can't fly in a blizzard. Some people do lose it up here in the dry valleys. It's a cold climate version of going tropo. The other night, Tim told a story about a team camped in the nearby valley radioing in with a send more Valium request. Instead of sending more Valium, they sent a helicopter to remove the afflicted young scientist. I have a small vial of diazepam, a benzodiazepine similar to Valium, but in this unfamiliar situation, I'm too anxious to take it. If my symptoms are not anxiety, if there's something else, I worry that taking diazepam in this cold at this altitude might have unintended consequences. It might be contraindicated, so I continue without it in case it masks physical symptoms that will be needed to diagnose me. I'm aware that I'm being overdramatic, but it doesn't help how I feel. I try some mindfulness techniques. I focus on the orange of the tent, 
the sound of the dry snow hitting the nylon, the feeling of the cold air on my face, and I become aware of my tiredness. At home, I sometimes lie awake at night and worry, panic even, about climate change and what we're doing to the planet and the future world my children will grow up in. Tonight, I try to focus on my breathing, using a technique taught to me by a respiratory physiotherapist. I try to think about how I'm going to get warm, whether my water is going to stay unfrozen, and whether I need to use my pee bottle before I go to sleep. There's nothing more I can do. If I die tonight, then I die tonight. I think about the absurdity of this thought and the unlikeliness of it, and I sleep. So the end of that reading, you, you take your own personal anxiety into climate change anxiety, and that in some way is a backdrop to both the book and a lot of science going on in the Antarctic. Um, I was really interested in your occasional sense of hopelessness on who you were communicating to. I wondered if you wanted to touch on that. Sure. Well, I've been writing for a long time um, a science column for the listener. Over a period of about six years, I wrote 30 columns or features about climate change in some way. But my science column had a big tag at the top of the page that said science. Um, and so I had a strong sense that the people reading these um, articles were very much on board with the, the message, the realization this was happening and we needed to do something about it. And I was perhaps giving them a few little interesting details or you know, a little bit of updates on the latest research. This book is called 15 Million Years in Antarctica, not, hey, we all need to think about climate change. And um, so I hope that it might reach a few people um, who are interested in Antarctica and think, hey, Antarctica's cool, I want to read about this and maybe get a few other messages along the way. And with the online course that um, I worked on with a colleague, Cliff Atkins, from um, the geology department at um, university, we also um, made our course into a MOOC, a massive open online course that was available to learners around the world. And we've had more than 8,000 students do the course, and many of them from the United States. And we did, in that way, reach quite a few climate change deniers. And some of them who told us they'd changed their minds about climate change from the evidence that um, Cliff was presenting about the geological record and projections into the future. And so that that was really, yeah, great to know that, yeah. I think we can throw the floor open now. We've got lots of time for questions. Does somebody want to grab a mic? How do you react to the recent news of the higher temperatures being recorded in Antarctica? And how, as a scientist, can you see the future of that continent? Um, first of all, I'll point out that I'm not a scientist. I'm science trained. I did five years of geology, but then sort of moved into um, history and science communication. Um, yeah, I have. I did note those um, that recent information about the record high temperatures in Antarctica, um, and that's the sort of thing I researched to put into my book. What some of the highest temperatures that had been recorded there were, and I'm just noticing that, you know, all the, you know, sort of ice melt, highest temperature. Um, data that's in my book is already being superseded by recent news. You know, I'm thinking about this sort of stuff and hearing about it on a weekly basis, always there stressing me out at some level. 
so far the um, the warming in Antarctica has been um, mostly focused around the Antarctic Peninsula. So the the part of Antarctica that I've spent time in in the McMurdo region has had reasonably steady temperatures up till now, but it's kind of a matter of time before we see those sorts of things changing as well. Um, and to some extent it's sadness, and I guess it's that grief that this amazing special place is going to be changing, is going to be melting. And, um, and you know, I, I remember back to when I was a child, we used to go skiing in, at um, Tura, um, Mount Rapehu sometimes, um, and, and my family had a, a little holiday place near there. And I remember the first time I saw the mountain in summer without the snow, and it was devastating. And it kind of reminds me of that. Um, yeah, I, I don't want to see those changes happen. So if everybody tells two people that tell two people, we won't make a difference. Yeah, and, that, and that's, I mean, something that I always say when I speak is we do have time to make a difference. It's not time to just, you know, to, to, to experience grief and hopelessness and... Um, and beat ourselves up about it. There is time to make a difference. Yeah, we can stop things getting a whole lot worse by the, the decisions that we make now and in the next decade. Do we have another question? Uh, what can we do, as, especially in the younger generation, to combat all the misinformation about climate change that's around? Yeah, I think that's a really, really hard one. Um, and I probably need to get more in touch with what younger people are sharing um, and posting. I did read something today that in older generations, um, maybe it was 70 plus, that something like five out of six things that they share on Facebook are, are from fake news sites. You, you're aware of that? Um, and I guess it's, you know, listen to the scientists scientists at Victoria University of Wellington's Antarctic Research Centre, but scientists around New Zealand, I think, um, and I guess encourage people to be critical thinkers and to be critical about the source of the news story, not just the information in it. Kira, Rebecca, I was fortunate to read the book in Antarctica oh, this wow. summer. Uh, I was working there as a tour guide, so I was interested in your comment you were in, uh, when you were at Cape Roids that you said with what, with what I thought was some vehemence, I'm very glad I'm not going to be here when there's 40 tourists here. Do you, is that because you wanted your experience to have the, the solitude of just being there with three or four people or, or is it because you don't see a place for tourism? I was there having this intense emotional experience in this amazing place um, and feeling very isolated. I was there with a, a couple of other people were over there somewhere and I was there with these, you know, 2,000 penguins, but I was also aware that in a couple of weeks there was going to be a line of people coming up the pass and having the same experience, and I, yeah, I didn't want to be a part of that. So in a way I wanted to keep the tourists out, but I was also completely aware of what, you know, what special rights do I have to be having this experience when others don't. And I know the tourism that happens in the McMurdo area is very, very different from the tourism that happens on the peninsula where you've got giant cruise ships sort of lining up to take turns um, to give each um, shipload of passengers the impression that they're the only ones in this um, amazing landscape. So 
I guess I would differentiate between the sort of tourism that happens in McMurdo area and the peninsula. Um, and I have mixed and unresolved feelings about it. Thanks. Uh, this is kind of a, a request and a question as well. Uh, as the father of a 15-year-old daughter who is anxious sometimes about climate change, with the changes that you've researched and seen in, in Antarctica, do you think it's possible to communicate the message of climate change with a sense of hope? Because I think it's really important. So do you think it's possible? And if you do, please, could you? Yeah. Well, I, so I've got three teenage children, and I, I grapple with that, and I want them to be very much aware of climate change, to know that it's a problem, a really, really serious problem. But every time I talk about it, I say, and so this is what we've got to do and um, encourage them talk about the sort of individual actions that they can take and um, talk about the sort of battles that we're going to have to face. So I guess I encourage activism um, and I go to the climate marches with the kids, as do most of the scientists that I work with. Um, we At home we talk about things like... Um, we've mostly become a vegetarian household now and we talk about why that is with the children. Um, and I think real active things like um, tree planting, you know, um, volunteering and going on um, sort of, um, you know, group activities where you can plant trees and talking about what you're doing and why you're doing it and the sort of difference that it can make is really, really important. Um, so, yeah, make them aware of the problem and say, and that, so this, you know, if, you, if you're part of a family, this is what we are doing as a family to make a difference. And once they get a bit older, it's about voting and um, talking about the sort of businesses that you are going to support with um, where you spend your money and putting pressure on, you know, the bigger businesses and corporations that way. Thank you. And I'm being a little bit greedy because there's no one else in the queue. Um, something that I, that, that's, as someone who gets up in the hills a lot, and something that uh, troubles me a little, um, and this, this refers to the last question about Antarctica and tourism, do you think there are areas of our country, of our planet, that we should just set aside for no other purpose than it should be left alone? Probably yes, but there are probably also other voices in that conversation, particularly indigenous um, people, um, and what, um, what those parts of land might mean to them might be different from, you know, my perspective sitting here in Wellington. Um, so a qualified yes, but let's bring more voices into that conversation. Yeah. Just got a question about Antarctica. It probably follows up from the last question about wilderness, I guess. And it, we do see it as probably the most untouched continent. So I suppose it's really important that countries have bases there to support science because our understanding about climate change comes a lot of it comes from that but there are other reasons that countries have bases there and there are perhaps some things going on and upscaling perhaps um, building runways that sort of thing so what's your view on I guess the uses for Antarctica and, and, and that sort of activity mm. I, I guess that's a really good question because I guess my sort of early more naive perspective was that it was all about the science but it's not the reason why a lot of our countries have year-round bases. It's about maintaining a physical presence on 
the ice. Um, the politics of Antarctica is not really my expertise, so I probably don't have a whole lot more to say about it, but yeah, having those claims to those bits of land in Antarctica is, a, is I think, the primary reason while why, people, why you know, different countries have their bases there. If we can get to do some really important science there, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah no thanks. I wasn't trying to be political, really. It's just always that sort of, sort of tension between environmental pres preservation but needing to have an impact in order to do the science or, or whatever it is. So yeah, sure. It's always a trade-off, I guess. Yeah, but I think um, if you look at the way that the base is operated like even as recently as the 1980s, um, it's, things are so much different now um, with the environmental protocol and the requirements around operating without having an environmental impact. So I think, I hope that um, things are a whole lot better now than they were. That said, I know that on McMurdo, um, at, on Ross Island at the moment, the McMurdo station is rebuilding and there are plans to rebuild Scott Base. There's also talk about putting in runways in the McMurdo Sound area. So there's a lot of things happening um, and then a lot of potential for impact. Yeah. Some optimism too, though, because it's one of the only places in the world where all those countries come together and have a treaty that they operate under and try and do the right thing. So Yeah, and there's a huge amount of co cooperation between all those different nations that are, that are working in that area. That's quite positive. And I think, maybe I put it in the book somewhere, um, Matt Vance, who is the, the Antarctica New Zealand communications officer who took me down the first time, said, you know, if only the world could operate the way Antarctica operates, it's like a giant co-op, everyone working to support each other. Great, thank you. I was wondering how your um, background as an undergraduate in geology has sort of informed your science writing and also just how you experience the world. Just walking around and be like, that is how that was formed sort of thing. Um, it was very... Um, formative, I think, and I do look at the landscape and and think about the way things formed. And I think it has, um, having that understanding of deep time, um, I think it makes it easier to think about the the future beyond my lifetime and and to <laughs> to worry about it <laughs> or, or to consider it, to take that into consideration, I think comes naturally when you've got that understanding of deep time. Um, it's also quite useful, I'm a nervous flyer, but as long as it's not too turbulent, if I'm in the air, I always have a window seat and I'd want to look down at um, the landscape and below me and, and I find myself sort of trying to interpret it. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd, I loved studying geology, studying earth sciences and the other sciences in terms of um, um, chemistry are too klutzy to do sort of experimental work and um, ice bio biology is so gruesome. There's things <laughs> killing each other all the time. So I guess I, what I loved about um, geology and, and physical geography is that, and it's a bit like writing, is, is um, sort of looking around and getting a few clues and doing, doing research to, to w find the clues and then working them into a narrative, um, telling a story. So I guess that transition from geology to writing was, it was quite a nice one, yeah. Thank you. One of the things I thought people might ask about um, was 
your sense of being another. So you're emphatically not a practicing scientist, but a writer and science communicator. Um, do you want to say a little bit about how you felt as sort of part of, but not part of, that community down mm. at Scott Bay? Yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, I guess I, I've spent a lot of time with scientists um, from being an undergrad geology student right through to, you know, more recent years writing about science and working in a faculty of science. Um, so I don't feel particularly other, but I feel on the edge. And I guess I feel like I'm sort of on this boundary between... Um, the humanities and the sciences or the writing world and the science world. And I do feel comfortable. I like, I don't like being in the middle of things. I like being on the edge because it's quite a good view from the edge. Um, you, you get a, a, a much wider perspective. Um, so I, I never, you know, I spent time in a field camp with eight male geologists and I didn't feel othered or uncomfortable. Um, but I, had a sense of being, um, yeah, my, my role was to some extent ob observing, yeah, from, yeah. I guess in, a, in, a, in the social sciences, that sort of thing can be called participant observation, um, which I was not doing in a proper theoretical sense, but it's very much like that, yeah, being part of it, but, but watching it at the same time. And do you feel more comfortable writing uh, with your humanities voice, if you like, as a social observer, or with your sciencey technical voice? I couldn't tell from the writing which one you were enjoying the most. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I guess the personal stuff comes naturally, because I will write in a journal, and that just sort of blah, all comes out, um, and then I have to edit it to make it sensible. Um, this, the science writing, I guess, is something that I've, I've learned to do. Yeah, and, I, and I've, I only write about things that I'm interested in. So I've never been employed as a journalist or a writer to write about what someone else wants me to write about. I've um, used being a science writer as a way to explore things that I really want to explore, a way to meet people I want to meet and go to places I want to go to. Um, so in that sense, you know, it got me to Antarctica, what, you know... Well, nothing to complain about. So it's, yeah, been wonderful. I'm very struck by your comment about when you were writing for the listener that perhaps you're writing and communicating to the converted, to the science community. That, and it makes me wonder about how successful or otherwise you think the discipline of science communication has become or got to. It's a young discipline. Uh, and... You compare that with the way Greta Thunberg's worked onto the global stage. She's 16. She has no training in geology uh, or any other science uh, at this point in time. And there seems a disconnect between the what we manage to do in science communication uh, with uh, the act, yeah, the, the activist. So can you comment? Um, that's a really good point. Yeah. Um, there is a disconnect, but I think, you know, if you even look 10 years ago, I think the, um, and even perhaps with our last chief science advisor, there was a tendency for the scientists to be more an authoritative voice, um, talking dispassionately about the issues. And I think 
now there has been a move, at least with some scientists in our community, to be a lot more open and honest, um, to talk about their concerns, vulnerabilities, to present themselves as a whole person rather than as, you know, just some authoritative figure. And I, I think of Susie Wiles, um, who's, who's writing a lot about the coronavirus at the moment. She very much brings her whole self to the way that she writes about science. And also with Tim Nash and Richard Levy and the other people who I wrote about in my book, they let me, they um, were generous enough to let me sort of write about them in the field um, as, you know, real human beings, um, not just authoritative figures. So the scientists in my book are um, swearing and drinking and, and talking about their worries about the future. They're sharing their anxieties as well as me talking about my anxieties. And um, they're talking about the ways that they are changing their lifestyles um, to try and um, practice what they preach in terms of talking about climate change. And I think that's been a, sh a shift. Would, would you see that, Juliet, as well? I think so. I think scientists have to change and be really honest about their values as well as the discipline and how the values frame the questions and the way they communicate. Yeah. 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 So I was rereading the book on the plane coming down this morning and um, the only bit I think I didn't believe was the words in the last few pages where you say you're not going again. Is that true? <laughs> That was how I felt at the time. On my third trip down, I had a, um, I'd been thinking about it, but I had a moment where I very much, I was on my own and I just said, I'm, I'm not gonna come back here. And I said it out loud to myself to try and see how it landed with myself. Um, and I did have a sense, I finished the book, um, so I don't have a, an immediate purpose, a reason to go back. I have had a possible invitation to go back um, that I'd, I'm not sure about. So I don't know. Um, I would, I'd need to have a good reason. I'd need some convincing to go back. Um, and is, Has the yearning gone? Is it out of your system, do you think, with three visits? Or? Something's gone. Yes, yeah, something's definitely resolved. Um, this possibility is to a different part of Antarctica. So I'd have the um, FOMO, the fear of missing out, of not going. So, yeah, I'm not really sure about how I feel about that. Um, I think probably not. There's a lot of carbon to burn to go on a trip like that, and I'd have to, it would have to be pretty well justified. Yeah. Well, I'm really glad for myself for the audience and for everyone that reads the book that you did go three times and you managed to capture it so beautifully for us. Can we all thank Rebecca for writing the book and for a lovely hour.